Bibles, please open up to Genesis 4. If you don't have your Bibles, it will actually not be behind me on the screen, but you can listen on. Um, so starting with verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from, the face, from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. May God bless the reading of his word. So, um, I always find it necessary for the week before Easter, before we get into the resurrection, I always want to keep on reading from wherever we're reading from, because especially in Genesis, it makes the Holy Week in my mind that much more pertinent. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did he have to be um, die at the hands of uh, sinners, of Gentiles and Jews? Why did he have to endure the pain that he had to? Well, it all begins in Genesis. It all begins with the first sin. If the first sin was all the sin that humanity had ever committed, there would still be a need for Christ. Because death still was there. Um... And so that's why we have to remember, okay, why do we do this? Why do we continue to talk about this? Because Genesis is actually the reason. (laughs) It's the beginning. It's why we even have Christ to begin with. So, let's go on with verse 1. Now Adam Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So the fourth chapter of Genesis begins with Adam knowing Eve. This concept, I'm going to keep hitting that all day. This concept of knowing can mean a number of different things, but contextually it means that they had intercourse. And from that came the conception of the birth of Cain. Um, The meaning for Cain's name is lost to us currently. There are those who believe it is etymology, 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 I'm going to give up on that word. First time. I've said a lot of weird words, 
Etymologically, there it is. Similar to the word smith in ancient Akkadian, um, but this is speculation. Ultimately, what we know for sure is that Eve names him Cain, and he is the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Once he is born, Eve reflects on what has occurred. Uh, This is one of the portions of this chapter which has led to much debate, and there's a lot of debate about this chapter as it is. Um, Some speculate that Eve is portraying herself as on par with God, and that just as he created, so Eve has created. Yet this is harder to understand contextually, thus most commentators agree with the ESV, which understands Eve to be thankful for God's providence in providing Cain, though there is certainly ambiguity with this statement. After the birth of Cain comes the birth of Abel. Now there's no extra statement made about Abel as there is with Cain. Um, Some scholars speculate, however, that his name is similar to the Hebrew word for breath. Um, Thus, in this way, Abel's name foreshadows what will occur to him in a way. Um, yet in the text, we only learn of this occupation that he, once he's grown, he's a keeper of sheep. Likewise, we learn the occupation of Cain, which is similar to Adam in that he is a worker of the ground. So now verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So the story continues by describing the events that take place in the course of time. Um, This phrase can simply mean a year, or it can mean an extended period beyond a year. Um, Though year here makes the most sense, assuming that this was a practice to offer sacrifices to God once the harvest year had occurred. Um, We learn early that Cain offers of the fruit of the ground. Uh, There's no other mention of his offering other than this. Likewise, there's nothing informing us of Cain's disposition about it. It, We we don't learn that he's angry about it. We don't learn um, that he's hesitant to give to the Lord. All we learn is that he just gave. Um, We also learn, however, of Abel. He does not only bring his offering, but he brings the firstborn and offered their fat portions. Ultimately, God takes favor with Abel and his offering, but refuses Cain and his offering. For as long as we have known about the story of Cain and Abel, it has struck commentators as to why Cain is rejected and Abel accepted. There are a number of different views on the matter, though the two that fit most um, deals with the offerings themselves. Cain, not bringing the choicest of his fruit as compared to the choicest meat of Abel, Likewise, it may show the dispositions of both brothers. As Abel gives the most because he desires to honor God, Cain may be seen as not to give the best for the exact opposite reason, is that he doesn't want to give the best to God. Still, this choice between Cain and Abel causes Cain to be very angry. Perhaps it is jealousy toward his brother, perhaps just anger towards God for the rejection. We cannot know the exact reason for Cain's anger. All we know is the repercussions of it. We see this when the text describes Cain's face as fallen. Thus, he was also depressed or sullen over what had occurred. God, however, is not a God who is unaware, is he? So he asked Cain, 
What is causing him to feel this way? Now, God already knows the answer. However, as he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Or as other translations may say, will you not be forgiven? The purpose of God's questioning is to see the heart of the matter for Cain. He and his sacrifices will be accepted if he seeks to do what is well. This may also lead to the reality that though his face is downcast, um, if he seeks to do what is well, then what is right, it will lead to his face being lifted up, finding joy instead of sorrow. Yet there is always the choice presented. The same choice is presented to Eve. To follow in obedience or to turn away into sin. Like Eve, there are disastrous consequences in following sin. It desires to destroy rather than to help Cain. Sin, whether it is temptation or seen as some kind of a demonic figure, is not seeking Cain's benefit. It is up to Cain, however, to master over the darkness rather than be mastered over himself. Now we come to verse 8. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Another harder verse to translate, especially the first half. The text quite literally ends as the ESV suggests. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. That's it. Nothing more. Uh, Because of this, there have been those who amend the text by adding that he requested that they go out to the field together or by saying that they had a rendezvous together to talk. Ultimately, we're unsure other than that Cain and Abel were speaking to one another, perhaps walking toward the field together as they talked. Yet it is, when they arrived in the field, Cain slew Abel. The act of violence against Abel comes quickly, and it's very similar to the fruit of the garden, when it just happens. It isn't glorified. It isn't even elaborated on. It simply occurs. The act of disobedience comes and goes, and only the repercussions are what's left. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. At this point in the story, the Lord again questions Cain. There are similarities again with the Eden story. Just as God questioned Adam, calling him out, where are you? So now he questions Cain about Abel. The response of Abel, however, is somewhat callous and dark. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I the guardian of my brother? Never in the Old Testament is anyone called to be their brother's keeper. Though the Mosaic law does speak of brothers caring for one another and helping one another in time of need especially. Yet God does not need Cain's response. (laughs) God already knows the answer to his questions. Just as he questioned Eve, what have you done? So he questions Cain in the same way after the disobedience and faltering into sin. God knows because Abel's blood cries out for justice. The cries of the oppressed, that's the word used here, of those who experience injustice. They're heard by God. 
just as Abel's blood is heard by God. So his blood becomes the very first of such a crying out to God. For the first time in Genesis, we receive a divine curse toward a human. Previously, the land and the snake were cursed because of their disobedience, um, the human disobedience and the snake. The spilling of human blood, however, leads to a divine curse against humanity. One does not simply murder another human, for humans are made in the image of God and are therefore their sacred. Thus, in murdering Abel, Cain brought the divine curse upon himself, and that curse is that the land itself will be an even greater burden than it had been after the fall. Thus, when Cain tilled, as was his workmanship, the earth itself would not give the full yield. He would be cast out from the family tribe, left to wander as a vagabond upon the earth. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain's, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now Cain's response is interesting. When Adam and Eve are given the judgment of their sins, there seems to be an acceptance. Cain, however, does not accept He argues that the punishment is too great for him. He repeats the judgments, recognizing that all of his life is now in turmoil. The work which he had done will no longer produce what it did. He will be displaced further from God than even Adam and Eve were when they left the garden. He who is well grounded with his family will leave them as a wanderer. Likewise, there is the added fear of retribution. There is no evidence that Cain and Abel were the only children of Adam and Eve that they had. As such, when his brothers and sisters find out what Cain had done, they may very well come against him. God, however, has other plans. While later on in the Old Testament, God enforces the law of lex talionis, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this time God seems either merciful or gracious to Cain. He places on Cain a mark. What kind of a mark is up to speculation? The mark itself, though, will keep others from coming against Cain. And if any were to go against Cain, the judgment would be even greater than what Cain had received. From this, Cain went further east than even Adam and Eve, settling in the land of Nod. This is a play on words, as Nod represents a land of wandering. All right. The main point of this section is to highlight the story between the first two sons of Adam and Eve. As we find, Cain comes across the same temptations to sin as his parents and is also unable to master control of the temptation, no matter what that temptation may be or where it comes from. Because of this, he commits the first act of murder in the scriptures, taking the life of his brother Abel. God confronts Cain and banishes him to a life of wandering. All right. The story of Cain and Abel. You know, it's one which we're all aware of. We've all heard it plenty of times, I think. It is a universal story of jealousy, rage, temptation, disobedience, sin, death. And it continues to captivate us, doesn't it? Maybe it is because of the betrayal 
of brother against brother. Or maybe it's the fact that Abel's blood continues to cry out. For as we notice, Abel's blood cries out the same way as the oppressed cry out in their own sorrow and misery. And thus Abel is the first of a long line of individuals who cry out against injustice. Yet to understand the story, one does not necessarily look to Abel. The truth is, the story is about Cain. It is about his lack of desire to please God and his own corrupted heart and nature. It is evident throughout the story, his lack of desire to offer God the choices of his work, as well as the callousness which accompanies the warning God gives him concerning sin. Instead of heeding God's warning, Cain jumps right into it, committing an atrocious act worthy of the first cursed human being. As we consider it, the story ends in a bit of irony, doesn't it? For the beginning of the story depicts two brothers who are both seeking the Lord to get closer to the Lord in sacrifice. And it concludes with one of those brothers being sent further from the presence of God than even his parents. Thus, the curse of sin is ever-present within the text. Sin causes the first man and woman to be cast out of the presence of God. So it is with the offspring. Sin is the great executioner of relationships. Just as it broke the relationships between humanity and God and humanity in the world and husband and wife, so sin breaks the relationships between offspring, between brothers, and in turn between the eldest and God himself. Cain is the perfect example, not only of himself, but all of us. He exemplifies the response of the sinner toward everything which is good. First, in regards to giving his best to God and his complacency in this task. How easy it is for humanity to follow suit. How easy is it for us to say, not today, to God by giving him our time, our very lives. And yet, we'll give our time and our lives to everything else. What greater sacrifice could we give to God than all of who we are? To love him with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. Yet very often and very easily we find ourselves not doing these things. Very often we find ourselves giving God the second fruits of our lives. Our Sunday mornings sometimes, but not the rest of our weeks. We're like Cain in this. Likewise, there's the reality of the second aspect of Cain that represents humanity, and that is a lack of desire to tame and control sin. Cain was warned about sin and yet did nothing about it. Are we not the same? Are we not told what sin is and like Cain, ignore the warnings? Do not lie. Do not cheat. Do not steal. Seek obedience to God rather than disobedience. Each one of us can reflect on our own lives and recognize how like Cain we are in this area too. Humanity in general does not heed the warning signs of sin. And even as Christians, we can fall into sin because we do not keep our guard up. We remain disobedient to keep watch of the roaring lion of the devil waiting to devour. Like the disciples who fall asleep, sometimes we languish in our complacency all the while not taking heed of the disobedience we find ourselves in. Finally, Cain's response to God's judgment is exactly what we hear from humanity. The judgment is too great. 
How could a loving God judge any of us? That's not a loving God at all. Well, then the question reminds us is, well, well, how could a loving God not judge us when we're disobedient? How could a loving God allow sinners to simply remain in their sin without some kind of judgment? A God who did this would not be a good God, or a just God, or a loving God, but a monster to allow the wicked to roam free without any repercussions. Yet we continually see the truth. We are like Cain. Humanity in general is like Cain. We make excuses. We blame everyone but ourselves. We reject the warnings of God, the word of God, and then weep at the judgment of God as though his judgment is too harsh. The warning signs are clear to us if we are to listen attentively. Sin, disobedience, they are destroyers of what is good and right. Like Cain, they crouch, waiting for us to let our guard down. They are ready to leap upon us at a single moment, seeking to destroy all that which is good in our lives, especially relationships. The response from Cain should teach us not to respond in like manner. His willingness to allow sin to crouch and not master sin is evidence of his heart and his nature. Instead of battling it, instead of pitting his will against it, we find him succumbing to it. The warning is here. Do not let sin do the same to you. It is no surprise for us to find such warnings in the New Testament. Consider what we read from James 4. This is a long one, but it's a good one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is... To no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here, we find the response to Cain's situation rather strikingly. The second verse, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This is the very situation which Cain found himself in. His brother was the one who received, and Cain grew jealous and covetous. What is the New Testament's response to such a situation as to the one Cain found himself in? To turn toward God in humility and recognize his grace. Instead of turning toward evil and the devil, resist, fight. God's grace gives us the strength to overcome the devil. For we have the strength of Christ within us. 
We are not powerless, but powerful because the one who is within us is Christ. In Christ, we are heirs of a promise. Through him, we are transformed from the children of wrath to the children of righteousness. We who were once descendants of Cain are grafted in to descendants of the blessing. Just as it was said concerning the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent having enmity, we see it firsthand with the first true children, the first human couple, and even within us. The enmity, the strife between darkness and light is rather prevalent in the human race. None of us escape the struggle. The problem is, the scriptures teach, far too many of us live not in struggle, but in a blind willingness into sin and disobedience. Consider it. How easy it is to fall into disobedience. Husbands, you know what I mean. Your wives fail in some way. Maybe they're mean or bitter, or they burn the supper. So in response... You're mean. You're bitter. You break a picture. Yet the response should never be this for their failures. Christian husband, your response under every circumstance to your wife is to love as Christ loves. Tell me, husbands, does Christ stop loving you when you make a mistake or fail? I hope not. Otherwise, I know I wouldn't be loved by Christ anymore. No, we are called to love even more than their failures. Wives, what if your husband makes a misstep? Maybe he says something mean. Maybe he's unloving, does something unloving. Maybe he forgets your birthday. (laughs) So in response, you fight back. You don't submit or respect him because of his failure. Yet is this a response God would have of you? Does Christ, when you make a mistake or mess up, say, no more grace for you? Does he stop serving you? Of course not. He gives grace, mercy, love. And he's obedient to the Father in his role, despite your failures. These are just some examples on how we can overcome Cain in these areas of life. Ultimately, though, it goes so much further. For to overcome Cain in all areas of your life, it is necessary for you to seek the scriptures, the word of God, his warnings to us about how to live and what to be in this life, and seek to live according to his purposes in all things and for his glory in all things. To not allow that little voice in your head to say it's too hard. To allow Christ to be prevalent in your lives. His yoke is easy because he is always with us. It's not hard when you remember who Christ is and how he promises to be with us always. There is our strength. It won't come from these cane bones. It comes from Christ. My encouragement to you is to learn from Cain and Abel. To heed the warning of Cain in your own life. To seek to glorify God by giving him all of who you are. By taking seriously the word's warning against sin. And remembering who our God is in his justice and praise him for this. The more you learn about God and his ways, the easier this will be.
The more you give yourselves over to Christ, the easier it is to show this grace, peace, mercy, love, righteousness, and justice in your own life because you get it from him. Be encouraged by this. We are not stuck repeating Cain's life. We are able to overcome because Christ has overcome. Praise God for this. Praise God for what he has accomplished through his precious son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. i just turn it off. And so we continue on in Genesis talking about the Gospels there. <laughs> it's right there in the story of Cain and Abel. It's right there in the midst of a great atrocity that occurs, the first great atrocity in the human race. Well, second, after the fall. We see it happening over and over and over again now. How similar Adam and Eve's story is to Cain and Abel. Maybe how similar your story is to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. It all starts with this origin story that we keep going back to. To the fact that God created the human race in his image. And this is a wonderful thing. How deeply loved you are by God because of this. Because you are a masterpiece. But a masterpiece placed in the wrong place loses some of its value. Um, And a masterpiece that maybe gets chipped or the paint fades, or maybe the top of the canvas rips. There's something about it. The problem is, though, is that we do it to ourselves with the fall. We rip ourselves up into pieces. We rip others up into pieces. We don't seek God very often. And when we do, it's like what James says. It's for our own passions rather than for the glory of God. And when we talk about all these relationships being broken, again, the greatest is the fact that our relationship with God himself is broken. And it's a disastrous consequence for humanity. But then the question is, how, how do we get unchipped? How does the canvas get fixed? What can the artist do to transform it, make it whole, make it better? And that's what God does. It's not just the fact that he makes things necessarily the way they were supposed to be, but then he goes and restores it to a grand, pristine image that no one else could have ever done. It's not just that you are then created beings of God, but through the redemption of Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. And that is what we find in all of this, with the redemption aspect. You know, Cain and Abel's story, they're leading us to the Holy Week. Cain and Abel, their story is leading us to the necessity of redemption. Even their story of sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice. As is said in the Hebrews. How Through him, his blood covers us and we are redeemed. No more sacrifices anymore. We don't need to be like Cain and Abel who go and sacrifice to God. Why? Because God has sent the sacrifice and it's Jesus Christ. No more. You get to live for God completely now.
redemption and whole. And it all starts in Genesis. And now, what we're all hoping for, and we're looking forward to this, aren't we? Glory. Glory after glory after glory. Some of us are feeling the effects of age. Um, I know I'm 32 today. I feel like I'm feeling it. (laughs) But we are. And the truth is, though, is that we still have an eternity where all that's going to change. And I know each one of you is looking forward to it. Looking forward to the aches and the hard breathing and the sorrow, the pain, to be gone. And that's where we're going. To a place where love is so permeated in our beings, you will never feel any sorrow again. We're getting there. God is bringing us there. And God is a God of history. And we see that. And what he did in history 2,000 years ago on the cross and what we're celebrating this week leads us there. So as we celebrate it this week and as we celebrate the Holy Week, let us remember all the story because it's a long story. And not only does it involve all the things that we read about in the scriptures, it involves your very life. It's your part of the story now. You're grafted into the tree. Praise God for his grafting. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the story of Cain and Abel. And as we reflect on the darkness of humanity, we know that the darkness will not overcome. We know that through your son, Jesus Christ, the darkness of Cain is at an end. And that there is going to come a time when the greatness of your name is going to be shouted and we will all sing Hosanna in the highest. The Lord has come. And we will all bow down in supplications and praise to your name because you are worthy. Because the Lamb of God is worthy of all praise. And so Lord, let us remember as we continue forward that we're not to be like Cain, but we are to live like Christ and that we can live like Christ because of what you have accomplished. He is the reason for all of this. We thank you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn today.